Well, it is wonderful to be uh, back with you again this week as we continue on in our series in Nehemiah. And as, as Tim and Jonathan have said, we are uh, launching into Nehemiah chapter 2. And the second chapter of Nehemiah could really be split into two halves. Uh, there's the first half of Nehemiah, the account of Nehemiah approaching the king, the king of Persia, to ask if he can go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild its walls. And then the second half of the chapter is really then the account of Nehemiah arriving in Jerusalem to, to start that project. And there is much that we could learn uh, if we were to take each of those sections independently. And I'd encourage you to do that this week, maybe even today. Go back home and, and invest a bit of time in both of those uh, as standalone independent uh, accounts. For our time together this morning, we're going to take a bit more of an overview of both. Because actually there are a number of themes and strands that run through the whole chapter that set up Nehemiah going to the king and then you see the fulfillment of as he is then in Jerusalem. And these strands and themes that go through the chapter, um, they are so appropriate for us this morning. Uh, in, in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised, especially considering the topic that we're going to consider. We shouldn't be surprised that God weaves these things together. Um, but I, I think by the end of our time today, you'll see how significant uh, these verses are, not just for a few in our congregation, for all of us to be reminded of these great truths. But one of the, the primary things that we're going to see throughout this chapter, and indeed we see this throughout the story of Nehemiah, of course we see this throughout the whole story of the Bible, is that God is the hero of the story here. That, that he's the main character that we should marvel at. So yes, Nehemiah is a wonderful example for us to study. As we saw last week, he's known as many things as an individual. He's known as a pragmatic leader. Yes, he is that, absolutely. He's a diligent administrator. He's a sort of quiet visionary, if I could put it like that. He's a devoted man of prayer. And all of those things are right and good and true and great examples for us to look at and try to emulate in our own lives. But ultimately, the story of Nehemiah is included in the Bible to show us something much greater, someone much greater. And so as, as we look at this story, and although this might sound a little simplistic, I really hope it doesn't, that as we look at this story where we're considering how God worked through Nehemiah and others to bring about his people in his place for his purpose, I hope that as we look at these 13 chapters in Nehemiah, we see more of God. We understand more of God. We, we, we marvel more at him. And that's, that's really important for us to grasp. Uh, especially if we're looking forward to this series and maybe some of you, and, and thank you for those who have got in touch this week to, to, to express this sense of anticipation of what God is going to do us, do in and through us as we look at this rebuilding and restoring work. And, and the reason why we need to see God as the main actor of this story and indeed our story is that God is the one who rebuilds and restores. So yes, Nehemiah goes and, and puts bricks and mortar together, but God is the one who rebuilds and restores his people in his place for his purpose. And so perhaps I think it's maybe natural for us to, especially for those of us who are knowing and, and very tangibly aware of the need for God to rebuild and restore our own faith with him. Some of us are in that place where we know that we've, we've drifted. We know that we are far from him. We know that we, we need to do this work of rebuilding and restoring. And so maybe this series has excited us because, great, okay, let's, let's have a 13-step plan of how we can rebuild and restore my faith. But actually, the story of Nehemiah shows that it is God who does this rebuilding and restoring. Yes, of course, there are many practical things that we can and must do if we're going to allow God to work in our lives in that way. But ultimately, my, my hope and my prayer is for this series is that we see him. We see God. 
as the one who is present, the one who is willing to act, the one who indeed is active in our lives and in our world. And so there's much that we can learn from Nehemiah's experience and example, but I think what we will benefit most from is learning about Nehemiah's God, who is our God, and the faith that Nehemiah had in him and how that shaped his, his whole life and work. Now, in saying that, and as right as it is to say that God is the main actor in, in this account, we cannot neglect the part that Nehemiah faithfully and boldly plays in that story. And so it's clear that it's a both and. It's not either let's focus on God's reality and, and activity in this story or Nehemiah's wonderful example. It is both and. And thinking along those lines t- took my mind back to uh, the 25th of April 2021. Uh, it was a Sunday morning gathering online and Stephen Whitmer joined us um, and he shared a message from Psalm 127 where he talked about uh, this, this complicated often idea of the relationship between God's ultimate sovereignty and human responsibility in living out in his world. And he explained how there's a few different ways in which we can wrongly understand the relationship between this thinking that God is ultimately in control. Well, then what is our role? And he firstly shared that, well, one wrong way to interpret that is, well, God is ultimately in control, so I have nothing to do. A second wrong way to understand that is, I'm not, I don't believe that God is in control, so I have everything to do. It's all my responsibility. Whereas the biblical theme that we see and what we're going to pick up from today in Nehemiah is actually the third reality that Stephen mentioned from Psalm 127, that God does everything and we do something, is the way that Stephen put it. We see it in Psalm 127, that God is ultimately in control, that he does everything, but he invites his people to join him in his mission and in his work. And, and, and it's, it's an absolute marvel that God would invite us into his mission, into his work, but he does. Uh, he, he doesn't invite us because he needs us. He is sovereign. He does everything. But he does so, so that we can know him and love him all the more. And he gifts us and equips us for his purposes. And so we see this in Psalm 127. And this is, I think, what we're going to see through this grand scope of, of chapter 2 of Nehemiah. That yes, Nehemiah acts, Nehemiah plans, Nehemiah waits, Nehemiah defends God's honor. But he does all of that work and all of that action undergirded by God's activity, by God's sovereign control. And so my contention this morning is the same as it was for Nehemiah, that that Nehemiah is not the hero. He's a great example to us, but he's not the hero. That hero is God alone. And that is still true for us, that he is the only one deserving of praise. He's the main actor in our lives when it comes to restoring and rebuilding our faith. And so if he is ultimately sovereignly in control, then what is he calling us to do as we serve him? So with that being said, we are going to read the whole chapter. Uh, and we are going to think about how God's activity underpins and undergirds so much of that. And so if you do have God's, a copy of God's word with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to read all 20 verses. And as you're turning there, maybe just to set the scene a little bit, to recap on last week, Nehemiah is a man serving in the palace of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And he is a Jewish man serving in the king of Persia's uh, palace because the people, the Jewish people had been taken into exile by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were then taken over by the Persians. But the Persians had a different understanding of exile and they were starting to send some of their people back the people who had been exiled by the Babylonians back into their home territory. 
So a group of Jews had already gone back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And another group had gone back with Ezra to reinstate temple worship and reading and teaching of the law. But the state of Jerusalem, the physical state of Jerusalem itself, was still pretty grim. And Nehemiah, at the start of chapter 1, receives a report of the state of Jerusalem. The the walls are still burned, the, the, the gates are still destroyed, and so Nehemiah is devastated. And we saw then last week how he prays to God for this whole situation. And he spends about four months praying, fasting, mourning, uh, while he waits for God to lead and open the door for him. And the last phrase that we see in chapter 1 is an important one. I was cupbearer to the king. Now that may sound like an insignificant thing for us, but it's really important because it shows that Nehemiah had a very significant role in the Persian Empire. We we might just mean that that that, that seems like a, a glorified butler, but he is so much more than that. Nehemiah is essentially... King Artaxerxes' last line of defense against someone who might want to kill him by poisoning him through his food and his wine. And so Nehemiah was in charge of making sure that that wine was good for the king, often meaning that he had to taste it himself, and therefore risking his own life so that the king would be spared. And so Artaxerxes, this powerful, mighty king of Persia, trusts Nehemiah with his life. Uh, And also then, being the cupbearer gave Nehemiah access to the king that not many in the empire were privileged to have. And so he's cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is devastated by the state of Jerusalem. Remember, if, if you can, the, the very last line of his prayer was that God would grant Nehemiah favor in the presence of this man. And now we're picking up in chapter 2 when, king, when Nehemiah does enter the king's presence. So Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, verse 11, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been burned by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. 
The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Tobiah, or sorry, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And so we pray that that God would bless the the reading of his word to us. So maybe you were able to read or or listen along there and, and hopefully you were able to see some of these examples of God's sovereign control and hand in human history. Let me just run through some of these examples. Verse one and two, Nehemiah approaches the king. Well, for a start, that shows God's sovereign hand that he's given this opportunity to Nehemiah to be in the presence of the king. That's a, that's a wonderful opportunity that God has given. In verse three, he, Nehemiah approaches the king. He's very much afraid at the end of verse two. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? Now, despite this fear that Nehemiah had, and Nehemiah should have been scared. This was a very dangerous thing to be sad in the presence of the king. Not just to be sad in his presence in case you made him sad. That was dangerous enough. But also to be sad and then tell the story that, okay, king, may you live forever, but my city lies in ruins and this is dangerous. Then he goes on, as we read, to ask the king to leave. So it's dangerous for Nehemiah to be in the presence of the king and to be sad. It's dangerous for Nehemiah to be there and to ask to leave the king's service. The king could have taken that very personally to say, how dare you want to leave my presence? And not only that, we can read back in Ezra 4, and as we talked last week, Ezra and Nehemiah kind of umbrella over this whole period of human history. But in Nehemiah 4, it was this king, Artaxerxes, who actually stopped the rebuilding work that was going on in Jerusalem. We read in, in Ezra 4.21, Artaxerxes gives this decree to the people who were working and living in that area. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so the city wall will not be rebuilt until I so order. So Nehemiah is now in the presence of this all-powerful king from a human perspective, being sad, asking to leave his presence to go back to the city that Artaxerxes had said should not be rebuilt. But notice the last phrase in Artaxerxes' order, until I so order. Well, well, Artaxerxes, you might think that you can control when these things happen, but no, God has now been planning and preparing Nehemiah to go and rebuild this city. And by the way, as we know, Artaxerxes gives that permission. And as Nehemiah says, that is because the gracious hand of God was upon him. In verse 4, Artaxerxes asks, well, what do you want? Nehemiah turns really quickly to prayer. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. It's likely a silent prayer before he answers the king. And before he responds, and then his response is interesting. A couple of times we read, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight. Well, if we remember back to Nehemiah's prayer to God at the end of chapter 1, in verse 11, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. 
So Nehemiah asked God to grant him favor in the presence of this man. Then he stands before the king and said, if it pleases you, king. And then a couple of times we hear, it pleased the king, so he did X, Y, and Z. God's hand is all over this. Nehemiah expresses that by saying in verse 8 that the gracious, gracious hand of my God was on me. He makes it clear again when he's talking to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He tells them about all the work that needs done and then explains that the gracious hand of my God is on me in verse 18. See, this is clearly evidence of answers to Nehemiah's prayer. It's clearly evidence of God's sovereign control over this whole situation. God then, of course, not only provides all that Nehemiah asks for through the king's hand. And maybe we read that and think, Nehemiah, you're pushing your luck a bit here, mate. You've asked to leave the king's service, and now you're asking for letters to go through trans-Euphrates so that they let you go through peacefully. By the way, back in Ezra, the, the, the king, Artaxerxes, stopped the work in Jerusalem because the rulers of trans-Euphrates had complained to the king and said, Jerusalem's being rebuilt, and that's dangerous for the empire. And so now Nehemiah is going back through that hostile territory, so he needs those letters for, so that he can pass through. But Nehemiah asks to leave the king's service. He asks for letters. He asks for all the the timber from the royal keeper of the royal park. And so Nehemiah gets all of that that he asks for. But of course he gets more than that. The king also sends officers and cavalry. And so having asked for God to provide favor in, in front of the king, Nehemiah is now walking away with even more than he had hoped for. God's gracious and generous hand of provision is on him. I know I'm jumping around here, but then we go to verse 12 when he gets to Jerusalem. And interestingly, he says, I I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So God had been the origin of this whole burden for Nehemiah. Nehemiah had heard the news, remember? In chapter 1, verse 4, he's devastated. He weeps. And God puts this burden on what he is to do, that he will be the one to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild this city. Everything is done under God's leading and guiding. And then finally, we finish in verse 20. When opposition comes again, Nehemiah answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Nehemiah knew that the God who had given this burden, the God would then fulfill that. That God had told Nehemiah to go and build the walls, and God is faithful and he will make it happen. He's the one who deserves ultimate praise, ultimate glory, and that would be what would happen. And so this brief overview of this chapter clearly demonstrates that God is the main actor at play here, that he is the one who gives the burden for the work in the first place. God is the one who oversees historic timing and human history. God is the one who hears and answers prayer. God is the one who graciously and generously provides. God is the one who accomplishes his plans for his glory. And our God still does this. Our God has not changed. This is still who he is. His nature is sovereign king. And so he still gives burdens to his people. He still oversees and controls human history. He still hears and answers prayer. He still graciously and generously provides. He still accomplishes his plans for his glory. God does everything. He is sovereignly in control. And isn't that that such a comfort to us? When we hear of what has gone on this week, isn't that a comfort to us? When we see the political instability and the landscape shifting all all around us, when we know of thousands of children who opened envelopes yesterday that seem to hold the whole of their future in their hands, when we see, when we view life, the brevity of life so close up, when we 
when things go on at work that are decisions are being made and pressures are coming on and we feel the stress and tension of it, when we feel buffeted and bedraggled by the relentless storms of life, it seems, how much we need to hear, how much we need to know and live in the reality of the truth that God is sovereign. God has not lost the plot. He has not fallen asleep at the wheel. Whatever we're going through is not bigger than our God. And this is not just theoretical religion. This is the lived experience for many of us. For Karen, for Angela, this is lived experience. That whatever we're going through, and goodness, we are going, some of us are going through the mill. God is greater. That is good news. Remember, some of you may know that the occasion in, in Matthew 8, it's also recorded for us in Mark 4, and Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. He's had a busy day of ministry. They go out on the lake, and Jesus falls asleep. And winds and waves start to beat against the boat to the extent that the disciples, these seasoned fishermen, they cry out. And let me read what the words that they cried in from Matthew's account in Matthew 8, 25. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. These seasoned fishermen, this storm is heavy and they're feeling hopeless and helpless. And so they turn to Jesus. But it's as if they've also, in turning to Jesus, they've forgotten who's in the boat. And so Jesus stands. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, Jesus, the one who controls the wind and the waves, is in the boat. And that sounds very grand. That sounds like a nice tweet. But for those of us who are feeling the storm of life, Know that Jesus is in the boat. I read recently, God does not prevent storms from coming, and goodness, don't we know that, some of us? But he is the God who is both present through them and sovereign over them. God is sovereign, and that changed everything for the disciples in the boat, changed everything for Nehemiah, and it changes everything for us if we know and trust in him. God is sovereign, and that is good news for us. But that's, that's not all we see in this chapter. As we mentioned earlier, the Bible clearly shows that God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean that we are then idle passengers. No, he invites us graciously and wondrously and mysteriously. Uh, he invites us to join him in his mission. So let's, let's finish off by considering what work Nehemiah does in the light of this truth that God is sovereign. He's, he's not idle. He's not passive. So what does he do? How does, how does the reality that God is sovereign change things for Nehemiah? Well, the first thing that we see is that Nehemiah confidently waits. If you remember last week, I've mentioned it already, there's about a four-month gap between Nehemiah receiving the news that Jerusalem is still in ruins, still in disgrace, and then he enters into Artaxerxes' room uh, at the start of chapter 2. And of course, we can see with hindsight that that waiting is productive. That we, God has been active in that waiting. We can see that. And very often, we can testify to that in our own lives. That as we look back, we say, okay, now I understand why God has caused this delay in my eyes. It's been productive for his kingdom. But it, at the time, it can be difficult to wait. However, knowing that God is sovereign, not just allows Nehemiah to wait. It allows Nehemiah to wait confidently. And the same is true for us. 
See, knowing, knowing that God is sovereign brings a completely different atmosphere to that waiting. It's not an impatient waiting. It's not a wondering, uncertain waiting. No, it's a confident waiting because even when we wait, we know there's purpose. Because God is sovereign. He's at work. We might not understand. It might not be in the timing that we would ask, but God is still working because he is still sovereign. His timing may not have come to pass yet, but as the song that we'll sing at the end of our service today says, that he is working in our waiting. And so knowing that God is sovereign enables Nehemiah and us to wait with confidence. Secondly, Nehemiah plans. We see this a lot, and maybe it's in the detail that we can sometimes skim over, but we see in verses 7 and 8 that Nehemiah had spent those months prayerfully waiting and making plans in what would be required for the rebuilding project whenever God gave the green light. So that when he stands before Artaxerxes, he knows exactly, he knows exactly what he needs for this mission. And so we read in verse 7 and 8, if it pleases the king, um, sorry, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors in Trans-Euphrates, and then in verse 8, may I have the letter to Asaph, so that he'll give me all that timber that I need. And so Nehemiah had been making plans. He'd, it's clear he had done his homework. He knew what he would need. And of course, he had to wait on God's timing. Planning doesn't negate waiting, but he had to wait on God's timing. He had ultimately trust God for God's provision, but he put his mind and his skills to work so that when God did open the door and give that green light and call him and move all things to make his plans come to be, then Nehemiah was ready. And he used what God had given him. And in this case, for Nehemiah, that's a a serious dose of administrative skill and, and tact. But he had given, Nehemiah used the skills and the gifts that God had given him to serve the purpose that God had given him. Nehemiah used the skills that God had given him to serve the purpose that God had given him. And we see this even when it gets to Jerusalem, when Nehemiah is there and he's planning. And we see in those verses from 11 through to 16 that he goes out at night and he examines the walls. Twice we have that phrase that he was examining the walls. Now, I'm, not, I'm skimming over it today. The detail that's given here about how he goes around and where he walks, we'll deal with that next week when we look at the detail of how the walls were rebuilt. If you like some first-hand experience, I just learned on Friday that both Cyril and Elizabeth and Stephen and Christine have been to Jerusalem. They've walked this. Um, I've asked them to try to hunt out some photos, so we'll see if we can get some. But these are real places. But Nehemiah goes around and examines carefully the walls. He's planning. See, Nehemiah knew that God had put this rebuilding project on his heart and that ultimately God would accomplish the job. Yes, absolutely. But part of God's plan for doing that was for Nehemiah to have a clear understanding of the needs around him and the needs that God was taking him to. And perhaps we're at risk of reading this account and and not seeing the level of faith that's involved in this planning. Maybe we assume that, that to plan means we're not showing faith or to have faith and to live by faith means that we don't need to plan. I think we see both and again here. That we see this, uh, the, 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 the both and work of Nehemiah completely and fully trusting and having deep and honest faith in what God has called him to do, but also using what God has given him and the time that God has given him to plan well. Now, of course, to plan by faith means that we are free to follow God at his instruction and at his guidance. But it doesn't mean that we don't plan for anything. God has given us the mental capacity to process and to plan But in doing so, and in planning by faith, I think this is the key, in planning by faith, 
it means that we hold more tightly to to the faith than to our plans. So very often, certainly what I find is I make plans and then ask God to bless them. But that's actually showing that I've got more faith in my plans than I do in my God. What Nehemiah shows here, he has complete faith in his God and starts to make plans. And that's the right way around. So we, we plan in faith and we hold more tightly to him than to the plans that we might make. Nehemiah waits, he plans, thirdly then he acts. And, and by acting he involves and shares the burden with others. And we saw this already when we see the, the exploration of Jerusalem. And then we get to verses 17 and 18. And that's the stage when he invites others and shares with them. I kind of giggle at verse 16 that the officials did not know where I had gone or where I was going because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. So Nehemiah had brought all these guys, had told them to come. They had come willingly without really knowing what they were up to until then verse 17. Nehemiah says, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And then verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. See, Nehemiah calls people to action. He names the problem. He shows the needs that people have. The walls and the gates are ruined. Then he explained what needs to be done. Let's come. Let's rebuild the walls. He explained why that needs to be done. That, that they, this, These walls need to be built so that we will no longer be in disgrace. And then finally he demonstrates how that that is going to be done. This is ultimately God's plan. That God's gracious hand has been on him. God has paved the way for this. It's wonderful leadership. You could do a seminar on this on how to cast vision and wouldn't that be wonderful. For us though, let's just recognize that Nehemiah acts and he draws people in. He spots the needs. He knows the needs. He explains clearly what needs to be done, why it needs to be done, and ultimately how God will make it come to pass. So Nehemiah acts, and he acts after he plans, and he plans after he waits. And in some ways, all of that could be summarized by the reality that Nehemiah trusts. God is sovereign. So what what difference does that make? Well, we can trust And this is particularly important when we see the final piece of both of the sections of this chapter. Both that first episode ends in verse uh, verse 10, and then the second episode ends in verse 19 and 20, when we see opposition starting to come. We see more of this in detail. We'll deal with these characters more when we get to chapter 4. But Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they appear, and they mock, and they ridicule. They start to question. They do not want this to go on. But Nehemiah can be sure that despite the opposition that is coming, that this will happen because God is sovereign. Opposition is coming. Things are getting difficult. God is sovereign. He has made these plans and they will come to pass. And so Nehemiah can be bold. Nehemiah can be assured because he trusts in God's sovereignty. And so he answers in verse 20 that the God of heaven will give us success. And we, his servants, Nehemiah knows that him and those working with him are the true ones serving God. It will start the rebuilding work. And so this trust enables them to stand against any kind of opposition that is coming. And and for those of us who follow Jesus, we know that opposition comes. Comes from within us as our sinful flesh comes to the fore again and seeks to lead us down tempting paths towards sin. Maybe we're even experiencing some of that verbal opposition a little bit like these guys did. 
Or maybe we're just living in the tension of following a king who isn't, who isn't of this world. We're, we're seeking to live holy lives that are not of this world. We're living for an eternal kingdom. And so that very often puts us at odds with some of the standards and cultural opinion. Or maybe it's even as we see in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have opponents. As we seek to live faithfully and follow God with all diligence and trust, we have opponents that will come from within us, from around us, from about us. But we can do all things, not because of our strength, because of Christ's strength in us. And we can trust because we know that God is sovereign. God will have the ultimate victory. God is leading us in obedience and faith. And so we can trust. We can face those opponents. We can face the storms. Not because of our strength. Not even necessarily because of the strength of our faith. But the strength of who our faith is in. He's the one who receives ultimate glory. And so what can we see from this chapter? Well, we see ultimately that God is sovereign and therefore we can trust. And that trust is then made visible. It's activated in our lives through our waiting, through our planning, through our acting. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you are sovereign. Father, you've been sovereignly over, over, sovereignly in control over all of human history. And yet, Father, how clearly we can see that you've been sovereignly, sovereignly in control, even of how our weeks have gone. Father, in leading us to this passage this morning, after the week that we've had, and how poignant this message will be for all of us. Thank you, God, that you care so much to bring us your word of encouragement, of challenge, of rebuke, maybe. Father, thank you that you are sovereign. And Lord, we confess that we live sometimes as if we don't believe that. We live trying to keep control of our own situation and circumstances. And Lord, it's not that you call us to be completely passive. You invite us to take part in your will and your way. But Lord, would you help us to trust? Would you deepen our trust in you as we get to know you? As we see you for who you truly are, our ultimate king, the one who, the one who provides, the one who gives burdens, the one who graciously gives, the one who hears and answers prayer, the one who equips us for your service. Father, would you help us? We thank you, God, that as we're coming to turn to your table, Lord, we see your ultimate love displayed for us. And so in your sovereign power and in your mightiness, you do not stay aloof, but you've come to be among us. You've come to send your, send your son to die for us so that our sins would be forgiven and we would be welcomed into your glorious presence for now and for all eternity. Lord, this baffles us. We know we're unworthy of it. Yet because of Jesus, we can come. And so we thank you. Lord, we do again pray for those of us who are 
um, in the midst of storms, however those storms might be coming at us, Father. We pray that you'd help us uh, to full of faith and full of trust to wait and to plan and to act under your guidance. Lord, we would see your sovereign control and that would give us great comfort, great encouragement, great boldness as we seek to serve you faithfully. Thank you, Father, for your good word to us. Pray that we would be changed by it for your glory as we seek to follow you in greater obedience. And it is for your glory that we pray. In your mighty name. Amen.